You're listening to the On the DL podcast, the official podcast of Temple ISD Digital Learning. I'm your host, John Woodward, and this is episode 10 of season three, featuring a conversation with Dr. Catlin Tucker. Dr. Tucker is a best-selling author, international trainer, and keynote speaker. She was named Teacher of the Year in 2010 in Sonoma County, California, where she taught for 16 years. Catlin earned her doctorate in learning technologies from Pepperdine University and is currently working as a blended learning coach, education consultant, and professor in the Master of Arts in Teaching program at Pepperdine University. Catlin has written a series of best-selling books on blended learning, which include UDL and Blended Learning, Thriving in Flexible Learning Landscapes, Balance with Blended Learning, Blended Learning in Action, Power Up Blended Learning, and Blended Learning Grades 4 through 12. She's active on Twitter at at Catlin underscore Tucker and writes an internationally ranked blog at CatlinTucker.com. Without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Catlin Tucker. Well, I am on the DL now with Dr. Catlin Tucker. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Easy to say that that you're a well-known name around the education world, especially in terms of blended learning. But I know you are, are busy as, as can be, flying and, and traveling just about everywhere. How many days out of the year would you say you had to travel? Oof. Well, since COVID, it's been dramatically, obviously, I was, I think I, I was training every single day, sometimes multiple groups a day, but it was all virtual um, for, I would say, the better part of a year and a half. And now I'm just starting to get back out and about. And I would say I probably travel somewhere in the neighborhood of half a dozen days a, a month right now. And that will probably ramp up a little bit as things continue to open up. There goes the frequent fire miles, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what your current role is. What are you currently doing? Yeah, so folks will probably know I started out in a very low tech classroom. I taught English language arts for 16 years. I have my CTE credential in information technology, um, loved working at the high school level, eventually went halftime teaching and picked up some coaching and was working with teachers all over the country as a coach, supporting the shift to blended learning. Um, then I went and got my doctorate in teacher engagement and blended learning environments. And along the way, I just kind of haven't stopped writing books. And when people ask me what I do, I feel like it's sometimes hard to answer that question because I feel like I have a lot of jobs. So I am a professor in the Masters in the Arts of Teaching program at Pepperdine University. I spend a lot of time training, facilitating trainings with teachers and even leaders, school leaders looking to shift to blended learning. So sometimes I'm working with a leadership group in a district to try to figure out how do we build the infrastructure necessary to really shift toward more sustainable ways of doing this work, improving teaching, uh, the teaching experience, student learning. And then I work with teachers where we drill into the different models and how to design and facilitate learning with the different blended learning models. So I do a bit of that kind of training. I do coaching where I will lesson plan with teachers and get into classrooms and support the process. And then, you know, I write my blog, I have my podcast. And so, yeah, I definitely, I love it all. I, I feel so fortunate to be this passionate about my work, but it's, a, it's sometimes a lot. <laughs> no wonder you call your podcast The Balance. I'm not sure how you balance all that. 
I oh. think I'm, I'm just trying to get tips from people. I'm talking to <laughs> yeah. all these amazing people and I'm trying to learn, like, how do you guys do it? Because I need to work on this for sure. Obviously, you're doing pretty well at it. How often do you produce a, an episode of your podcast? So I do a, a full length with a guest once a month. And then I've just started. I did it periodically during the um, the real heart of the pandemic um, when teachers were online. But I've started also recording just a short mini episode that usually will drop about halfway through the month, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 minutes. So my full length is more 45 to 60 minutes once a month. And then I have these little mini episodes. Well, that's pretty ingenious. Do I, I need to do maybe I need to do a podcast and get tips from people on balancing my <laughs> Yeah, that's not, not a bad idea. Well, you have obviously described you described blended learning in a in a blog article, the why, how, and what of blended learning. And you describe blended learning as the combination of active, engaged learning online combined with active engaged learning offline to provide students with more control over the time, place, pace, and path of their learning. Um, I, I read your definition for this question. Why do you think so many people seem to have such different ideas of what blended learning means? And many, many of which are so contrary, contrary to what it really is. Mm -hmm. I think, especially after the last two years, I was incredibly frustrated at times the way this phrase was thrown about and not really pinned down into a clear definition. And the most important part of that definition from my perspective is that positioning of the learner as active agent in the learning experience, whether that experience is happening in a physical environment with other students in a class community, whether that is happening online. What I don't want is for students to continue to inhabit this very passive consumptive role, be that in a classroom listening to a teacher talk, be that online watching videos or going through the motions of kind of a review or practice program or game. I want students to be thinking critically, engaging in conversation, collaborating, being truly creative. And so the way in which we use technology in the physical classroom and beyond really should be to shift the control dynamics that are kind of classic where a teacher has control over all those elements and start to figure out how do we give learners more control over their experience? Um, because it's really, that's how we're going to motivate them to lean into the learning and really start to share the learning experience and the responsibility for learning with us, the teacher in the, the room or the teacher in the course. So I, I don't know why it's so murky. Maybe it's because there's all of these different models and there's tons of different ways to combine that active engagement online and offline. But I think sometimes the focus is too much from my perspective on just like throwing technology into the mix. And it's not necessarily how are we using that technology to put students at the center of the learning experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not so sure that, you know, I think there were there were different competing definitions and inaccuracy and in defining it before the pandemic. Uh, I don't that did not help that issue. Mm -hmm. uh, because, well, then in the pandemic, you had people saying, you know, it was blended learning, it's hybrid learning, it's concurrent classroom. And all of these things just got kind of, it, I think they got murky. And the, the teachers who hadn't been really familiar with blended learning pre-pandemic were then asking to really dramatically shift practice on a very tight timeline. They felt there was a, kind of a lot of negative connotations about blended learning Absolutely. and like having kids do some of this learning online, which was unfortunate. 
Unfortunate's the word because I think it, uh, <laughs> it was it was not a uh, I don't know it's it was not a fair way to to judge, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it was not a fair time for anybody, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But when I think they saw blended learning as like a knee jerk reaction to the pandemic. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, there's so much potential here. Like I was writing about this in 2010, 2011. Like this is not a response to a moment. It's a better way to approach teaching and learning. Right. And our district was about five to six years into a, a blended learning, um, some cohorts and and things like that. And so it was not new, I think. And I, I think for those who had been through it, it was very helpful to have made that adjustment. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been much more difficult uh, without some form of uh, blended learning in the district had the, the pandemic come about. And so mm-hmm. I do think it helped us. For you, why blended learning? I mean, you've, you've obviously devoted so much of your time and, and effort into writing about this subject, it's clearly something you're passionate about. What drew you to this style of teaching? Yeah, well, it started when I was a teacher. And to be honest, it was desperation. It was a realization on my part that I had entered this profession with very clear ideas of the classroom environment and the community I really wanted to create. And then ultimately feeling for at least the first three to five years that I was absolutely failing to create this classroom I had imagined. Uh, Students weren't engaged. They didn't seem particularly excited to be at school or in my class in particular, you know. And I just felt like, what am I doing wrong? And I was teaching them the way I had been taught as a student, the way I was taught to teach in credential school, and becoming increasingly frustrated. And it wasn't until I started to kind of use my classroom like a laboratory and integrate some technology and some online engagement where I really started to see the shift in the way my kids interacted with each other, the way they interacted with me, the way they interacted with the learning activities. And for me, that increased student engagement was the spark that got me very, very excited about the possibilities of blended learning. And it makes so much sense now, now that I've done so much research in this space and, you know, even exploring things like human motivation and really understanding how important autonomy and students being able to make key decisions about their learning and have a degree of independence, how important relatedness is and feeling part of a learning community, which quite frankly, you can't do if kids never get to talk to each other or work with each other in a classroom. And then competence, like, do they feel confident in their ability to tackle different tasks? And that's hard to do when they don't get to make any decisions about the process or what they focus on. So for me, it it started as my really realizing that they were more engaged as I wove some of these online pieces into my very traditional classroom. And then from there, I just, I decided, what do I have to lose? I was really close to leaving this profession and every little experiment that I did weaving together this active engagement online and offline yielded these really exciting results. And now, you know, I also recognize that student engagement and teacher engagement, they're reciprocal. And so the more we can get students engaged, the more it engages teachers. It's just this really positive loop. Um, And that's what keeps me excited. I don't need every kid to be an academic rock star, but I want them to enjoy being in our classrooms and enjoy engaging with each other. We're going to get to the point uh, later in the podcast about what you said about 
thinking about leaving the profession because I think there's a lot of teachers yep. mulling that thought. And it, you know, I think it, it pains me to say that, but the truth, that's the truth. Uh, mm -hmm. I run into it every day and, and you hate to see it. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little more, but a question I wasn't going to ask, but, but piggybacking off what you just said, are you doing your current position looking to try and, and, and put the, the blended learning type mentality and framework into uh, teachers that are coming out of school right now? Yeah, it was funny when I got hired to teach at Pepperdine and I was teaching a, I started teaching a beginning methods class for uh, folks who wanted to go into secondary education. So sixth through 12th grade. And I looked at the traditional syllabus and I just said, okay, I'm going to change everything because <laughs> I didn't see any of this really integrated into it. It was very focused on specific instructional models, but not necessarily those that wove in that really dynamic technology piece. And it's fun to reimagine the way that teachers who are coming through these programs kind of think about this work. But even with a young crop of, you know, 21 students like I just had in my last semester, there are still a handful that are have that very traditional approach. Like, wait, no, I, I stand at the front of the room and I talk. And so my work with them is always to use the models as a professor, right? So my first time seeing them in person for our first in-person class, they ran through a station rotation and they had like a big uh, project associated with the program where they had a, just a really heavy couple of weeks where I, we replaced one of our online sessions with a playlist, you know? So I really wanted to model through my own teaching the value of these different blended learning models so that they could experience them from a student perspective. Then we could explore the benefit of them using them with their own students and student teaching and eventually their own classrooms. So yes, I am definitely trying to focus on this and integrate it into my work as a professor. Talk about, you talked about your classroom being a laboratory. You're deep in the laboratory now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's got to mm -hmm. be pretty, pretty cool, to be honest. It is really cool. And I and I also get I, I started running a cohort based blended learning coaching kind of uh, training. So it runs six weeks and they have 10 modules of kind of self paced learning. And then we have two two hour synchronous sessions and they can submit their model lessons that they're working on for or with teachers they're coaching for feedback. And again, that also just feels like this really cool opportunity for me to engage with coaches all over the country and continually learn. Is blended learning a game changer for the future of education? And, and is it here to stay? I get this from, from a lot of teachers wondering on certain initiatives that go on, you know, is, is this the newest thing? Is it going to stay? Uh, but is just, just asking straight up is, is it the game changer that, that we think it is? And is it here to stay? Yeah. So I honestly think at some point, John, all learning will just be some form of blended learning. Um, there are two things that I know for certain are not going to change in education. And you can't say that about a lot of things in education because it feels like we're in a constant state of flux. Uh, teachers are bombarded with a new initiative. It feels like every six months to a year. But the two things that aren't going to change is one, learner variability. 
students will always be different from each other. They will have different skills, different needs, different preferences, different interests. Um, that's not changing. And as soon as we acknowledge that learner variability is the norm, it is not the exception, then we have to really start examining our design and facilitation of learning experiences because it doesn't make any sense to design a single experience that is teacher-paced for a class full of diverse learners. The second thing that is not going to change is technology. Whether teachers like it or not, technology is not going anywhere. It has permeated all of these other parts of our lives and society. It's going to play a role in education. Now, the good news is we can decide what that role is going to be. And I think for a lot of teachers, there's some fear around technology replacing them, which I think is not accurate at all. I think actually technology should free us to engage in the human side of this work that technology, frankly, isn't very good at. And so for me, when you think about the fact that variability is a norm and it's not going anywhere and technology is also here to stay, blended learning is like the way in which we honor learner variability in our design and facilitation of learning experiences to better meet individual and small groups of learner needs. And technology provides a really powerful set of tools for us to kind of leverage in order to meet that variety of need and quite frankly, to free us as educators from feeling fairly trapped at the front of the room, transferring information, orchestrating a learning experience so we can sit alongside learners and support their individual progress toward firm learning goals and objectives. It's not going anywhere. Um, and it's just a matter of how it, how we adapt to it. Um, you know, I think it's, that's a tough one to say, is it here to stay? Because I think it is, uh, I agree with you for all the various reasons. I think it's a matter of how it's going to, to change. It's not, it may not look the same, uh, exactly. Um, but you know, I think the pandemic changed education completely. Um, and a lot of that's going to be for the good, I believe. Um, and, and has, to me, as a digital learning coach, has made me more aware of the power of blended learning uh, in the classroom and in a non-pandemic type situation. Uh, I well, think, to me, it just highlighted the strengths even more. Yeah, and I think... You know, one of the things that's so frustrating from a teacher perspective is a lack of student engagement, a lack of motivation. And if we take a step back and we think about kind of the student's experience beyond classroom walls compared to their experience in classroom walls, one of the kind of anecdotes I wrote for my UDL and blended learning book with Dr. Katie Novak was kind of comparing blended learning to like streaming culture, right? So we are like my, the way my two children, for example, experience or consume content outside of the classroom is they're in total control, right? Unlike my experience growing up where if I like wanted to watch a show, I had to be on the couch at a particular time on a particular day. And if I needed to like grab a snack or use the bathroom, I had to wait for a commercial. I had no control as a consumer of that media, right? It was like network television and I got what I got. Everybody got the same thing at the same time at the same pace. And if the president was on any of the channels speaking, right. you were done. <laughs> exactly. Just like when they do an announcement and everybody comes 
comes to a halt on a school campus, right? Now, my kids, when they want to watch something, they decide what they watch, when they watch it, how much they watch. And if they're not sure what to watch, something like Netflix will give them a recommendation based on what they've watched before. <laughs> so they have total control over their experience when it comes to engaging with and consuming content. And then those same kids go into classrooms where, again, they have no control. They don't get to decide what they learn, how they learn, what they demonstrate or what they create to demonstrate their learning. And then we're all like baffled that they don't love this experience. So for me, blended learning is also just a way to think about designing classroom environments to give students more control and allow them to really tailor the experience through meaningful choice to things that feel interesting and relevant. And hopefully that will then yield higher levels of motivation and engagement and higher student engagement leads to higher levels of teacher engagement. So it's a complicated puzzle for sure, but I think blended learning offers such an exciting road forward to make learning relevant for kids, to free teachers from the parts of this job that quite frankly are exhausting and not that rewarding, and to spend their energy in the parts of this work that are really engaging and rewarding. That's, you gave it, that, that Netflix example, all joking aside, is is a great example of what kids are getting everywhere else sometimes, but in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, so I appreciate that analogy. I'm going to switch gears a little bit to uh, talking about teachers and you've done extensive research, um, with, you know, in regards as you uh, worked on your uh, dissertation and your doctoral degree mm -hmm. regarding teacher engagement. You know, there's a lot that goes into picking that topic for a doctoral student uh, and candidate. What led you to to pick that particular topic? Yeah, well, in all honesty, my my why statement in the early stages of my own work in blended learning had everything to do with student engagement. I was seeing students come into my classroom who were not engaged. They were clearly not excited to be at school generally or in my class specifically. <laughs> and so for me, blended learning, starting to weave in these online components really like changed that, as I said earlier um, in our conversation. But for me, when I started looking into the research that was already um, available on blended learning, there was an absolute, like, there was absolutely nothing on teacher engagement. And teacher engagement and student engagement are reciprocal. So when student engagement goes up, like I said, teacher engagement goes up. When teacher engagement goes up, student engagement goes up. So because there was nothing on teacher engagement and because I work with teachers all the time and I know how challenging this work is from a teaching, coaching, and now training perspective, I really wanted to understand the dimensions of teacher engagement and what would engage them, these different dimensions of teacher engagement, cognitive, emotional, social with students, social with colleagues, um, in a blended learning environment, so that I could figure out, okay, if these are the things that are cognitively engaging for a teacher in this environment, how do we design and facilitate learning to maximize that engagement? Or how do we create um, environments where teachers uh, understand what is engaging and get to put their time and energy toward those things? Because ultimately, I knew it was going to have a direct impact on student engagement and actually teacher engagement 
impact student achievement as well. So because it's such a powerful motivational construct, I really wanted to understand it and understand what positively impacts the different dimensions of that construct. Well, I loved reading the information, the different parts you put on your, your website, uh, which are just snippets from, from what you learned, but mm -hmm. uh, sounds like it was uh, quite eye-opening. It uh, was. The research. Um, and I'm enjoying reading and rereading, I should say, uh, each one of those. Um, I mean, just piggybacking on that a little bit, you know, teachers are drowning these days, whether it's in oh. Northern California or in Central Texas. Um, they deal with them every day. Uh, they feel worn out. Um, they're overwhelmed. And we're talking veteran teachers mm -hmm. as much as brand new teachers. Um, what advice would you give to teachers that, that feel that way when it comes to implementing blended learning in the classroom? Knowing, especially when it's a district initiative and expectation, mm -hmm. what's your advice to those teachers that are already feeling overwhelmed, but yet this expectation is still there? Yeah, and I will say it's not just Northern California and Texas, it is global. Every teacher group, whether they are in Colombia or Africa or the States or Asia, it does not matter. Everybody is exhausted. The last couple of years have been so incredibly demanding on educators that it's funny because here we are at this moment in the school year coming, you know, the end is in sight. We can see the light at the end of the, the school year tunnel. And so many teachers in the last few months that I've worked with, they're just I mean, they are really just treading water. They're in survival mode. They're exhausted. Um, this year has just been a lot. And especially a lot after I think the expectation was like, hey, we're going to come back to classrooms. Finally, things are going to go back to normal, air quotes, normal. Um, and then we get into classrooms and it's like we're seeing more management issues than we've ever seen before. We're dealing with things like learning loss and social emotional and the trauma kids are bringing back into the classrooms. And it's just been so challenging. But I feel like with blended learning, I'm what I'm trying and what I want to do is like throw this like metaphorical life raft out to these teachers who feel like they're drowning. And why I feel like blended learning can be a life raft is just in the fundamental shift in control that happens within a blended learning environment. Control shifts from teacher to learner learners really have to share the responsibility of learning with us, their teacher. And it's in that sharing of responsibility. It is in the shift in control and ultimately the partnership between teacher and learner that can start to turn things around for teachers. I think we still have a lot of teachers who are they are quite frankly doing the lion's share of the work in the classroom. They're doing the lion's share of the thinking, the lion's share of the talking. It's exhausting. And I get it. We're scared. We're scared that if we give students more control, they, they won't make good choices and they, they won't do the work assigned. But we can't make students do hardly anything. We certainly can't make them learn. We can only present opportunities for them to learn. And ultimately, it's the student who has to lean into those opportunities. And students are more likely to do that if they're interested, they see relevance, they're motivated by whatever the task, the topic is. So there's a degree to which 
we have to kind of take a risk. And, and, and maybe this is starting next school year where we're real intentional about building a strong classroom learning culture and community where we start to teach students how to be our partners. Maybe we really invest in things like teaching them how to stretch and build their metacognitive muscles through things like goal setting, self-assessment, regular reflection, bi-monthly updates to their families about their progress. All of these things that really start to shift the ownership, the responsibility, the ownership of like the progress over to the learner, and then ultimately help teachers to really examine these traditional teacher-led workflows that are so time-consuming and so exhausting and awfully, often very ineffective and reimagine them from a more student-centered perspective within a blended learning model where kids are making more choices and really um, getting to pace their learning in a way that works for them. So I, I know there's a learning curve and I know it's daunting, but on the other side of that is a reality where teachers aren't doing the lion's share of the work and where learners understand how to be partners and they own their learning in the classroom in a way that makes us like rediscover our joy in this profession. Um, so I just, I just see it as this opportunity. Cause I mean, I, it wasn't after a pandemic, but I certainly remember being a, like five years into my career and thinking, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this job the way I was taught to do it. This is not working. Kids aren't engaged. I'm exhausted. I want to quit. And I think a lot of teachers are in that exact spot right now. And for me, Blended learning was the life raft that kept me in this profession, and obviously so much so that now I spend all my time working on this topic and training teachers and writing and speaking about it. It's your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and you hit on something. I, I I think you're exactly right, and I, and I love the the point you made of it's it's the life raft, but you hit on something that I think is is the key to the whole thing, and and it's. It's the risk taking. It's you. It's taking that risk. You know, you you spoke when you were you were drowning a little bit in the classroom and frustrated, and you had to change the way you did things, and that took a, a degree of risk in that. But what I see is, uh, it seems so many teachers are are really fearful of taking those risks in the classroom. Uh, there's very various. Um, guesses i don't know with with uh standardized testing and those things out there and and the heavy emphasis on data and and not you know there's a variety of variety of reasons that you could point to um especially in regards to blended learning though i think then they're really you know there's their focus is on so many other things i think taking those risks in blended learning they're sometimes afraid to because it might affect some other things because with with taking risks comes a little bit of failure and learning in the process and that's that's oh, yeah. part. so <laughs> i guess my question is why why do you think it's the case with with teachers the fear of taking risk and and what can be done to help alleviate that you know, what can people like myself as a digital learning coach or or admin or anybody that works with teachers help to to help them realize that they've they, I don't know. It's almost like they feel like they don't have the grace to take the risk and, and have to learn from those mistakes. They don't have any room for error. 
I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. It's not one thing. I think for some teachers, there is that still that mentality that I am the expert in the room, right? I'm the subject area expert in the room. I need to have the answers. I'm the person in charge of this learning environment. And so I need to know what I'm doing. And I wish instead of feeling like, oh, they are the experts, that teachers instead thought of themselves in a classroom as the lead learner. Everybody in this room is learning. And quite frankly, when we think, when we, when we get our, when we get our value as teachers, like all wrapped up in our expertise on a topic or a subject, I think we lose sight of the fact that the true value we bring to a classroom and to our students is not our subject area expertise or our pedagogical expertise. It is our humanness. It is our ability to look at a student and what they're doing and respond organically to their needs. What is it that they need from us to make progress? What is it that they need from us to build confidence? And what they don't need is somebody who pretends to know everything because we don't know everything. Quite frankly, Google knows more than me on every topic, right? So if I think that my value in a classroom is tied up in my expertise as an English language arts teacher, then that might feel very threatening. If instead, and this absolutely happened for me because I felt a lot of pressure to be the expert when I entered my first classroom at age 22 when I knew next to nothing about anything, um, I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, if kids ask me a question and I don't know the answer, then I'm a failure. Like I'm, I, I think it's that like imposter syndrome, right? We're in a classroom, we're in the early years. Um, and then as you become more seasoned, it's easy to lean on that expertise and just be like, I know a lot about this stuff. I'm just going to tell you all about it. Where instead, I think if we can design learning experiences to allow students to really kind of explore and make meaning, then it frees us to be more of these facilitators, these coaches engaging in that human side of this work sitting alongside small groups or individual learners. And it's in those moments where quiet kids ask questions. You see the light bulbs and the aha moments. Like that's why we're in this profession. And, but often we don't design learning experiences that free us to like engage in that work with kids. So the first thing I would say is it's probably that misconception that like our expertise is our value. And what I wish we were thinking was like, hey, I'm the lead learner. I'm a facilitator, like that's my value in this room. I do think that cultures on campus can make it more or less safe to take risks. You know, some leadership on campuses, they like really hit hard test scores and, you know, academic performance as measured by these standardized assessments. And that is daunting and it's scary to kind of deviate. There are also teachers who might not feel like they have the latitude to deviate from a really rigid pacing guide or fairly canned curriculum that they've been handed, which can be limiting. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of teachers, they're just, you know, you get kind of comfortable and they're just scary pushing outside of your comfort zone and trying new things. Um, so all of that kind of contributes to it. And then you have parents, you know, parents who went through school a while ago, they have this idea of what learning and teaching looks like. And then you do something different and you get parents who are 
asking questions or being aggressive or pushing back and maybe not seeing the value of things like blended learning and how this is going to benefit their particular child. Well, I, uh, yeah, I see myself and a lot of what you just said in terms of, I, th I think that analogy of the, the misnomer of having to be the expert, uh, you know, this was not my first career. I, I spent 10 plus years in graphic graphic design and advertising and came yeah. in and, you know, I really attacked it from the standpoint of, uh, you know, I had not gone to school. I went through alternative certification and I came in and I think one of the strengths with kids was modeling for them some of the experiences I'd already had mm -hmm. in life and that I did not know everything, you know? And so my, my, strategy coming out of the box was I'm not going to lie to them or try to be something I'm not. And what I learned through that process was the students appreciate the model of someone because I, I grew up, they, well, let me go back. They appreciated the, someone modeling, I think, a little bit of imperfection. Yeah. Um, I, I know in school, I looked up to my teachers and all and thought perfection you know, and that's what I'm uh, having to achieve, you know, and I think I reflected back to the kids and just said, you know, you need to understand that, that you're always learning, you know, and that nobody's perfect and that failure and making mistakes is part of the process. And so when I made a mistake, I tried to reiterate that with them. Absolutely. And uh, when we do that, it makes it so much less scary for them to take a risk, for them to fail, to for them to admit that they don't know, right? And there's all of this talk about growth mindset when we talk about students. Like we want students to know you can always get better through practice and um, hard work. But like we need to be messaging that to teachers also. Like you might not feel confident using the station rotation model yet. You might not feel confident navigating your learning management system yet. It doesn't mean you won't get there, but if they're not, you know, committed to kind of that continual hard work and practice and iteration, um, then nothing changes. And I think we as educators have this beautiful opportunity to really model, you know, what it looks like to hit a bump or to fail and to rebound, what it looks like to really live out like a growth, like really live out growth mindset and like demonstrate that. And, and even like you're saying, kind of make it explicit, talk about it. Like, Hey, I remember having conversations with my students where I was like, we're going to try this. I've never done this before. And at the end, we're going to come together and we're going to debrief and chat about it and figure out how we can do this better. And I know my students appreciated that level of honesty and vulnerability and just humanness that that surfaced in those moments because it made it less scary for them to have all of those different experiences in our classroom. Yeah. And they really can tell when you're blowing smoke. I mean, <laughs> totally. they, they really can. And I think there, there's a certain amount of appreciation when, when you talk to them and with them mm -hmm. uh, versus uh, down, you know, not so much down to them, but when you're talking to them, you know, just uh, person to person, I think there's a, there's a certain amount of respect uh, for that. What is your advice to, to an instructional coach or a digital learning coach like myself right now? What, what can we do to better support teachers in your opinion? 
I, when I work with coaches, so I do a lot of coach training, it always surprises me how much of a coach's day isn't actually spent engaging with teachers. And I think the best thing that we can do as coaches is to carve out time to work directly with teachers to personalize their coaching experience, right? Finding out what does this teacher care about? What does this teacher want to work on? What is a, a challenge or pain point they're currently experiencing? And then how can we as coaches work with them to design a strategy, a lesson, a routine that can specifically help to address the problem, challenge, or issue that they're facing? So sometimes I'll work with teachers and the district's moving toward, like they want everybody using station rotation at least once a week, right? So then there's a, not a lot of agency in that for teachers. So my job as a coach is within this coaching umbrella of, hey, we're going to work on the station rotation model together. But before we do, I want to have a conversation around like, what is a goal you have for yourself? What is something you're struggling with? And then I'm going to frame our coaching time together. Yes, we're going to talk about station rotation, but we're going to talk about it and also integrate this thing that you really care about. So I think teachers, you know, autonomy and agency, competence and relatedness, these are all fundamental to like human motivation. So when we think about that as coaches, how do we give teachers a degree of agency in the coaching process? How do we acknowledge what they care about and weave it into our work with them? How do we make sure that we're, we're helping them to design strategies, lessons, et cetera, that are kind of within their zone of possibility. So they feel confident and confident kind of employing those strategies. How do we connect teachers with other teachers trying stuff? So they have that sense of relatedness and community. So they have other people beyond simply the coach to turn to if they get stuck or they have a question. So it is a really, let me just say, it is a very tricky time to be a coach. Um, I feel that and all the coaches I'm working with are feeling it as well. Um, and I think everybody's in a little bit of just kind of like get through the end of this year. But as we look at next year, who knows? It, it could be challenging like this year and we have to figure out a way to make coaching feel personalized and relevant and, and something teachers want to dedicate their very limited time to. Yeah, it's a challenging time to to say the least. And it in your answers, I continue to hear what I hear from others. It really boils down to it's relationships with your kids, with these teachers. Because you know, some days I I, I don't have the answers. Many days th this year I have not had the answer or the right things to say exactly. But you know what? I could be a person that listened that day. Mm -hmm. And, and it's those relationships that opens up the door for you to come into the classroom and have those conversations. Um, and I really like in every book you have and then in your blog posts, you know, kind of in conversations with teachers and students is a part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, relationships, relationships are just the, the folk. I mean, they are the foundation of everyone in education's work, right? Like teachers' relationships with students, coaches' relationships with teachers. It's like if the relationship isn't there, if the trust isn't there, 
then nothing gets done. The learning doesn't get done. The implementation of strategies from mm -hmm. coaching to teacher doesn't get done. So yeah. yeah, I think that's, it's a critical piece. Well, it's, Ma it's Maslow's in a way, you yep. know, if, uh, if they don't feel comfortable and safe, then you're, you know, a student doesn't feel safe when they come to school. It's they're going to not, they're not going to learn. And if same thing with the teacher, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I've just, you know, as when I'm working with teachers this year, this year, and they're hesitant to get started and are overwhelmed, I've just been aim small, miss small and to start small and start manageable. And so I'm hoping that's been good advice. Oh, no, it, it reminds me like I end almost all of my training sessions with like a just some advice. And at the top, almost no matter who I'm talking to, I'm like, think big, get excited, start small. <laughs> I mean, like, I think that slow, small, incremental change is what ends up being sustainable and really leading to the most dramatic change over time. Um, I think it's a mistake to try to do too much out the gate. And yeah, then it can not go well. And that can be really hard to recover from. Yeah. Well, and teachers are overachievers and they're mostly, you know, so many are mm -hmm. perfectionists. That's a hard one. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easier said than done, but I think it's the truth. Oh yeah. Well, and I would add, you know, a lot of us like to have control because you are talking to a definite type A control person who has some perfectionist tendencies and, you know, it, this approach to teaching blended learning requires kind of letting go of some of that. And that's, that is in itself really scary. Letting go of being perfect, letting go of control, letting go of these, these other pieces. It's, it's a lot, but in but, letting go, yeah. kids, kids get to own more and take more of an active role. And that's really exciting. Well, and sometimes your return on investment when you do let go is more than you could imagine. Uh, yeah, I keep going back to your lifeboat reference. You know, sometimes we think, well, what could we we keep thinking, well, what could happen if I fail or this doesn't work? And and we've got to remind ourselves what could happen if it does work. Right. You yeah. Know? And uh, to leave open that possibility. Now, you've got not one, but two books coming out. Um, I do. I've, I've ordered, I've ordered mine already. Uh, and so tell us a little bit, you've got one coming out, which is the complete guide to blended learning, which mm -hmm. is, uh, from solution tree, correct? Yes. Yes. And then this next one is the, the shift to student led reimagining the classroom workflows with UDL and blended learning, which was out of I impress. And you did that with Dr. Katie Novak, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about what we can expect from those books. Yeah. So I wrote my first book on blended learning in 2011. And so obviously that was me in the early stages as a teacher, just kind of blundering my way through it. If I'm being very honest, I think that book was really a product of all the mistakes I made and everything I learned from those mistakes and then working with students and employing strategies and models and realizing, oh, kids don't have this. They're going to need this piece over here. And so I wanted to, and then I've written a bunch of books since then, but I don't have anything that was totally comprehensive. Like somebody could pick it up and it was literally A to Z, everything I would want to cover in a book. So the Complete Guide to Blended Learning is grounded in a theoretical framework 
though I don't spend a lot of time talking about it because I know that's not really what teachers want. And it goes through and really talks about how do you, like, what does the teaching presence look like? Like running small groups and station rotation, video instruction into the various models, into strategies. It is very concrete. It's very resource rich. And it's really a reflection of everything I've learned from being a teacher in a blended learning environment, coaching, doing my doctoral studies, and now being a professor working with teachers who are going into the field and recognizing what they really need. So my goal was really to create this kind of like one-stop shop for somebody who has just getting started or is in the early to middle stages of blended learning as people will get a lot out of that one. And then the second one is my follow-up to the UDL and blended learning book that Katie and I wrote, Dr. Katie Novak and I wrote last year or published last year. And it really, so we kind of established why these two frameworks are so beautifully complementary, um, but we wanted to really dig into how do we shift practice, right? Because there are so many, like I said, teacher-led, time-consuming, kind of ineffective workflows. Um, and we wanted to reimagine them from a student-led sustainability perspective. And so we identify a workflow. So chapter one focuses on information transfer, right? We spent a lot of time at the front of the room explaining things, unpacking concepts. What would it look like to shift this responsibility for, you know, acquiring meaning to students. And each chapter gives teachers three to five strategies to shift that teacher-led workflow. So we're hoping, you know, regardless of grade level subject area, there is something in there for everybody that they will be like, ooh, that's interesting. I want to play with that. It doesn't mean they won't ever be running small groups or providing instruction, but it's like, how do we start to reimagine this so that's not the only way in which kids gain information? Um, and we do it with discussion. We do it with reading. We do it with feedback. Um, there are 10 chapters. There are 10 workflows. And like I said, each one has three to five strategies teachers can play around with to shift the workflow so it's student-led and more sustainable. How long did it take you to do both of those books? Well, Katie Novak is... And how did you do all of that when doing your doctoral work? <laughs> I'm amazed. Um, well, I finished my doctoral in 2020. I wrote the complete guide and this... Yeah, I've written three books since then. So I did write a book while I was in my doctoral program, which I was told was a crazy uh, idea. But that's when I wrote the yellow book, Balance with Blended yeah. Learning. They just keep spilling out of me. I don't know. I love writing, but I will say writing with Dr. Katie Novak has been one of the great highlights of my career. She is, I don't have to keep up with very many people. Most people have to keep up with me and I had to keep up with Katie Novak. She is prolific writer. She's uh, amazing. And so I really, it was, it's been so fun working with her. It's sitting still something you ever do. Do you just sit still? I have a hard time downshifting. That's what I always say. I can upshift. I just have a hard time downshifting. Well, you're productive. That's for <laughs> sure. So I wish uh, now you've got a, a release date. You can pre-order the, the complete guide yes. now, which, which I did on Amazon uh, and it's due out in June. Yeah. They, because of the paper supply chain issues, the release date was bumped to June 17th, I think. And I still haven't gotten a, a, 
a release date for the one from Impress, the shifting to student-led kind of workflows. Um, it should be out this summer. I'm just not sure if it's going to be in June, July, or August. I would imagine probably July or August, given okay. the paper issues with the supply chain. But um, yeah. I'll definitely tweet out about it when I when I have a date. And that'll give us a chance to get started on the uh, complete guide, at least. Right. You get so. a jump start on that one. Are you a fast, as fast a reader as you are a writer? I uh, I read constantly. Yeah. Yeah. For a while, it was just research reading, which was a little dry. But um, now I've, I, I do have moments where I get to read for pleasure now, which is exciting. Well, you know, you're doing so much, uh, to say the least. And so much of the work it's 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 doing you're doing is to benefit teachers and ultimately students and uh it doesn't take long to to realize that you've got a true passion for this i don't know i don't know that you could keep up the pace you could you do <laughs> if if you didn't have such a passion for what you do so it's quite evident yeah well thank you my son said to me the other day he goes i don't understand how you're so happy and you work so much and i said bud I love my work. Like I found something I am so passionate about. It helps other people. And that's why I'm happy. What a lesson for him though, you know, that he'll find something too. The key is to find something that you love that much. And then mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't feel like work. No, no, it doesn't. So those were the, uh, the one set of questions. I usually end up the podcast with a set of lightning round questions okay. that are non, um, dissertation type questions you would not be having to defend but i don't know if you're up for that if you're sure. not. okay um you 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 have every right to pass on a question i okay. may uh i may ask for uh explanation on questions <laughs> okay. um or answers uh, you know depending on the question but um you know it's kind of shoot from the hip type stuff um, okay and you'll see that for whatever reason, and I need to relook at this, I've got a, evidently I've got a food obsession. I didn't realize that until <laughs> I started asking some of these, but, uh, all right. You ready? Do you need I'm to ready. take a drink or anything? No, no, no. I'm good. Okay. All right. Invisibility or super strength? Super strength. Okay. Any particular reason? I so how I process the stress I have from the fact that I do a lot of work is to work out. And so I just like the idea of having like super strength. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, as you get older, you realize strength leaves. Uh, I so, know. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm going over to the super strength camp myself. Favorite junk food. I don't eat junk food. I think, okay, so there's. And these... I know, yeah, because in looking at some of your stuff, I realized, <laughs> and I was like, man, she's not going to have any. Uh, but well, what's, what's the worst thing? I mean, you've got to have something that. I would say, like, a, it's not a junk food, but it's like an indulgence and it doesn't happen all the time would be dark chocolate with sea salt in it and almonds. That's like, if I'm looking to treat myself, this is what I splurge on. <laughs> You know, I, I was talking to Jim Knight and I asked him this question and his, uh -huh. his was chocolate. And then he said, well, either milk or dark chocolate. But then he said, dark chocolate was not a chocolate. What? And that's when I said, really? And he said, yeah, I don't consider that a chocolate. 
Wow, Jim Knight. This is going to, when I see him, I'm going to have to bring this up. (laughs) That's a whole other question. So I may have to add that in there. Is it a, you know, because it sounded like there was a lot more to that answer. Actually, chocolate comes from coca. So like the, right, cocoa, like, and there's more of that in dark chocolate than milk chocolate because milk chocolate has more like other stuff that makes it creamier. If you you listen to his episode with me, he was quite uh, adamant about Hmm. it. So so I'd like to know more. Let's just say that. Cake or pie? Neither. I don't like, I don't, Mm. I don't have a sweet tooth for them. I realize my last answer makes this sound like a total contradiction, but I don't do like dessert food. Like if I go out to dinner Instead of getting dessert, I would like indulge in a, like a glass of wine or an appetizer. I'm more of a savory, not so much a sweet gal. You know, the, <laughs> an- the answer is what it is. You know, I don't want, to, I don't want you to make something up. And so uh, I kind of figured that would be a uh, something else type question. Mm-hmm. What does a person need to be happy? <sighs> I, go from, I go from junk food and cake or pie to that one. I, I mean, for me, it's kind of three things. It's good health, something you're passionate about, people you love. If I have those three things, I'm always going to be happy. Leave it at that. I think mm-hmm. that's, yeah, can't argue with any of those. How many hours of sleep do you need? And I'm going to tack on, but how many hours of sleep do you get? I think I need like nine hours. I'm a more of like a, I need more sleep gal, but I would say I consistently get about seven. That's impressive. That's impressive. You must hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and I have started waking up early. I never thought I'd be like one of those people. Cause I used to sleep in like a teenager just five years ago. And now I've realized I'm most productive in the morning. So I typically wake up at five and I head to bed as soon as I can get my two teenagers in bed. <laughs> See, and that's what's happened with me lately. And it, uh, it does. It makes me more productive in the morning, but mm-hmm. uh, man, you need to teach a course on on your organization and <laughs> and uh, level of energy, so I can learn from that. How long can you hold your breath for? Not long at all. I would. I mean, I would drown immediately. I can't even. When my family used to hold our like breaths going through tunnels, because that's something that my X used to do. I just couldn't even make it through a tunnel. So I don't know what's wrong with my lung capacity. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, at least you tried. A lot of people have no idea, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to, I don't want you to try now because I don't want you to pass out right yeah. now. If you could travel back in time, what time period would you go to? Oof. If I could figure out how not to smell anything, I'd love to visit uh, Elizabethan England. Big Shakespeare fan. Big fan of Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> Smell would be a factor, though. Yes, it would be awful. Yep. Ask permission or beg forgiveness? Beg forgiveness. Without a doubt? Mm-hmm. <laughs> ask Jim Knight that one. He said, he said, does anybody say ask permission? <laughs> 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 I almost went, well, I don't you know, maybe. Maybe. Um, all right. So you're having... Here's a dessert question, but I'm going to ask you to I'm going to ask you to step out of, of your health zone just enough for I this. Okay. Let's say you're having a party, okay? Okay. okay. And you you're assigning jobs for people to bring things to the party and somebody you assign them dessert. Mm-hmm. 
what's the lamest dessert that people bring to a party or gathering and try to pass off as a dessert? Do you, you understand what I'm asking? Yeah. So like, it's not a true, cause I, my first, before you finish that, I was going to say like anything in a, a plastic container. Um, but well, you're I saying, think, I think that's fair. But yeah. I've had people say fruit, fr I you like know, fruit. fruit, but that they said <laughs> you can't just bring solid fruit and help say it's the dessert. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Although you're talking to somebody, I told you, I like that dark chocolate who was asked to bring dessert one time to a gathering and I'm not like a dessert person. And I literally just bought like nice bars of, chocolate <laughs> like, here you go and people definitely were like Catlin this is not this is not what we're asking for <laughs> so much so so what would you say do you would say the stuff in the plastic containers I would say anything in a plastic container from like a big grocery store chain I just would I'm they, not gonna I'm not gonna get excited about anything with the barcode and the price still on thank it? you exactly okay What's the maximum number of spritzes of perfume before it's too much? Uh, three. And probably not directly on you, but like in a cloud in front of you and then you walk through it is probably ideal. Is that is that your strategy? Is yep. that how you do it? <laughs> yep. Just this and then you walk into it. Yeah, because you don't want to be overwhelming. Because we've all we've all been around those people. We when, have. Okay. We have. Um, who inspires you? Oh, my goodness. I get inspired in lots of places. I feel inspired by my kids every day to continually work to be a better person and mother. I find Brene Brown incredibly inspiring. I could listen to her and her sisters talk on her podcast all day long. And then, you know, there are people in my professional life. I've I am inspired by Katie Novak every time we work on a project together. I'm inspired by Jay McTie. He's brilliant. And just like having conversations with him is so enlightening. So I feel so fortunate that in my personal life, I have these smaller humans who make me want to continually be better. And then in my professional life, I'm constantly meeting people who are just so fascinating and have their own pockets of expertise that are just, I, I love to learn. That's why I love this profession. And so constantly meeting people that just make me kind of think and challenge me and inspire me. That's a great answer. Well, we, the last one, and it's, yeah. it's the one I always end with. And I think I know your answer already, but okay. uh, sometimes it gets a little controversial. But it's it's not that bad. But <laughs> if, and I want you to think broad on this. Okay. Is double dipping at a party ever acceptable? No, no, it is not. No. That took about two seconds. <laughs> I just want my thirteen-year-old son to learn this. I don't care if you flip the carrot over. Get away from the hummus. We're all done here. <laughs> Even if it's family. Yes. Ew. I, I live with that 13 year old. I, I know hand-washing isn't to the level I would like it to be. So no, <laughs> you do not get to double dip at the house. Oh man. Well, that's it. Uh, Catlin Tucker, Dr. Tucker. Um, I cannot, I, I thank you greatly for, for being on this and, um, 
just for, you know, all the work you're doing. I know uh, just um, in regards to blended learning, but in, in coaching teachers and students, you're doing a tremendous amount of work in so many different ways, from books to your blog, uh, to links to your blog on Twitter. Um, you are doing so much uh, to to help education at a time when, when it's taken a lot of heat and taken a lot of, uh, you know, some unfair uh, attacks at times. Um, you're doing a lot to, to combat that and to, to lift up the people within it, which ultimately benefits the students, which should be our, our biggest goal. So I, I appreciate that. Absolutely. I love doing it. So, well, you have been the, on the DL, Dr. Catlin Tucker, and I thank you. And hopefully uh, one day we can chat again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Anytime. You've been listening to the On The DL podcast, the official podcast of the Temple ISD Digital Learning Department. Don't miss an episode, so do yourself a favor and subscribe in whichever podcast player you are using. This way you'll be notified whenever a new episode drops. Until next time, we'll see you on the DL.